Welcome to Clickhole Wednesday, a casual hump day hangout that takes less time to edit than my other shit. Hello ladies and pretzels, welcome back to another episode of Clickhole Wednesday, where we start with a suggestion or random article on Wikipedia and make our way to some unknown destination, hopefully learning something interesting along the way. Last week we started with the Dancing Plague of 1518 and ended in what sounded like the real-life Ethiopian edition of Game of Thrones, so be sure to check that out afterwards. Today we're going to get started with last week's other suggestion, that Dancing Plague beat to be the starting point, and that suggestion was Human Interference Task Force. So let's get clicking. Thanks to NNHK00 for the suggestion. Is there an easier way to say that? I feel like there should be. Please advise. Here we go, Human Interference Task Force. The Human Interference Task Force was a team of engineers, anthropologists, nuclear physicists, behavioral scientists, and others convened on behalf of the US Department of Energy and Bechtel Corp to find a way to reduce the likelihood of future humans unintentionally intruding on radioactive waste isolation systems. That's, that's probably a good sign. Is that like their logo? It should be their logo. No, it's a radiation warning sign, but it should be their logo. So all these people gathered together to find a way to reduce the chance of humans down the line intruding on radioactive waste. Yeah, I guess that's a um, valid task. Specifically, the task force was to research the use of long-time warning messages. What is that? Tended to deter human intrusion at nuclear waste repositories in the far future within or above the order of magnitude of 10,000 years. To prevent future access to the planned but stalled deep geological nuclear repository project of Yucca Mountain. Oh, so there was a radioactive waste isolation system in mind. Okay, so the problem is basically with stuff like bombs and power plants, they create a lot of radioactive waste, which is harmful for obvious reasons. And we do not currently have a method to provide knowledge about the location of that waste over the course of thousands of years. Now, you may be thinking, well, why don't we just make a fucking note and move on with our lives? But it's clear because the culture of earlier centuries is incomprehensible to us. Now, we know this because we even have to translate Shakespeare. <laughs> and that wasn't that long ago, let alone thousands of years. But it is important that our descendants are aware of where we've put this stuff. But they will not sound like us. Which is a creepy thought in and of itself, to be honest. Also because national institutions do not exist for longer than a few hundred years. And religion doesn't typically hand down scientific knowledge, and even that, you could argue, is subject is subject to change. And then people also dispute how long they're supposed to store it. So one group in Germany said that the waste has to be separated from the biosphere for up to a million years. About 30,000 human generations. Couldn't they just write the message and then set up a committee that every 10 years or whatever reviews it to make sure people will understand it at the time? I feel like that would be an easy way to, you know, make it clear, but whatever. We've only been writing for about 5,000 years, so it's hard to look 10,000 to a million years in the future, because some of it we already can't read such as the writing of the Indus Valley Civilization. They issued a poll in the 80s, asking how would it be possible to inform our descendants for the next 10,000 years about the storage locations and dangers of radioactive waste. Thomas Seabock? Don't know how to pronounce that. We're gonna go with the first pronunciation I say of everything. So, 
I hereby am released from the liability of embarrassment. He proposed the, cre the creation of an atomic priesthood, panel of experts which would be replaced through nominations by council, similar to the Catholic Church. That's true, they have done a pretty good job of preserving their message for a couple thousand years. Stanislaw Lem proposed the creation of artificial satellites that would transmit information from their orbit to Earth for millennia. He's missing the point though, because what format is the information in if maybe our language is different? He's also described a biological coding of DNA in a mathematical sense which would reproduce itself automatically. Oh, there you go. He acknowledged the problem with his idea that humans would be unlikely to know the meaning of atomic flowers 10,000 years later. Yeah, okay, well, he's out. Françoise Bastide and Paolo Fabri. They proposed the breeding of radiation cats or ray cats. <laughs> what? Cats have a long history of cohabitation with humans, and this approach assumes that their domestication will continue indefinitely. Okay. These radiation cats would change significantly in colour when they came near radioactive emissions and serve as living indicators of danger. Well, uh, Bastide and Fabry get points for creativity. That is intense. So the importance of cats would need to be set in the collective awareness through fairy tales and myths. So basically, you're creating an organic warning system. Interesting. Ray cats. That sounds like a musical. Vilmos Voigt proposed the installation of warning signs. Wow, Vilmos, you really did the hard homework. That was some really tough thinking on your part. The most important global languages. Again, you're missing the point. We may not have the same language. Okay, after a certain time span, new signs for translations would be installed, but the old signs would not be removed. Interesting. Newer signs would be posted further away from the location, thus the warning would be understandable as language change, and it would be possible to understand the older languages through the translation. Okay, alright, Volmos, I, I give you the points back. Sorry about that. Emil Kowalski. Terminal storage locations be constructed in such a way that future generations could reach them only with high technical ability. Hmm. Kind of like the more accessible ideas, to be honest. You don't want only a couple people knowing where this stuff is that could be used against civilizations. The probability of an unwanted breach would become extremely small, yes, but also the probability of corruption becomes high. Furthermore, cultures able to afford, perform such excavations and drillings would most certainly be able to detect radioactive material and be aware of its dangers. Yeah, I don't think we're going to forget that radioactive material is dangerous. That is not something we're going to forget. Then again, there's a lot of stuff that used to be dangerous that isn't now. Alright, well there you have it. That is the Human Interference Task Force. That is not what I expected. I thought it was going to be something far more sinister. Sounded like some kind of CIA experiment to me. But actually, that's a very valid problem. And it's interesting, the solutions I think that people have sort of started coming up with that doesn't require language. Right, where do we go next? You know, tempted by Yucca Mountain. Let's go there. Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository. It's a proposed deep geological repository storage facility for spent nuclear fuel. It's on federal land adjacent to the Nevada test site, about 80 miles northwest of the Las Vegas Valley. There's the proposed design. Let's check it out. Approximately a thousand feet beneath the surface and a thousand feet above the water table. What's a water table? 40 miles of tunnels. It will accommodate an estimated 77,000 tons of nuclear waste. What poor bastard has to fill it? How does that work? Where is it exactly? 
Yucca Mountain. Let's just Google Maps this for a second. Can I zoom out, please? Thank you. You know, I mean, it's hard to decide where to put these things. Nevada's got a lot of beautiful landscape. And so does this side of California. And I know it's the desert and people think the desert's boring and empty, but the desert's pretty magical. And you're kind of close to Las Vegas, which is a large amount of people. And I think there are quite, yeah, there are quite a few towns. Pahrump, that's a great town name. Um, yeah, I don't know where the ideal place is for something like that. I'm concerned how close it is to Vegas. Like when we went to Round Mountain, even that was further away from the nearest town than this is from Vegas. So I don't know how smart this decision is. Yeah, so Nevada's pretty opposed to it. Ooh, yeah, earthquakes, that would be bad. Okay, well, they've done their research on it. Apparently, earthquakes would not affect the mountain so much. Prime, the planned primary mode of transportation was via rail. Imagine just, <laughs> just a train of radioactive waste <laughs> just traveling through the desert. I just, I don't know, man, that seems like... I don't know, what has that train got to be made of? This is such a conundrum, the nuclear waste thing. Can we just find some other kind of fuel, please, so we don't have to deal with this in the future? So there's cultural impact because there are some Native Americans whom the area is very important. That's also tricky. They've just been delaying it. This is all delays, this whole thing. Dang. Okay, well there you go, there's Yucca Mountain. The proposed site of dumping nuclear waste. It's quite pretty, actually. Let's look at this picture. That's nice, man. I don't know. It's a shame to have to fill it with crap. <sighs> okay, where else? See also. Yucca Mountain Johnny, cartoon miner. That sounds like something from Fallout. Let's go to Yucca Mountain Johnny. I'm interested in this Bethesda Fallout type character. What does he look like? Oh, there he is. Wow, they really could have done some help from a design team to be honest. Oh god, who drew that? Have I just insulted them? Probably. His cartoon miner created by the DOE to present information to children on nuclear waste disposal and the Yucca Mountain project. Did they really need to sell this to the children? <laughs> They're like, we must teach the children. Serving as a virtual guide for the DOE's Youth Zone website. The DOE has a Youth Zone website? God, you learn something new every day. And appearing live action. Really? Is there a picture of that? No. Did somebody dress up as Yucca Mountain Johnny? Is Yucca Mountain Johnny the best they could do? I feel like, I don't know. I feel like there could have been something else here. He's drawn harsh criticism as a propaganda tool. Yeah, that's, that's the feeling I got. This really weirded me out that we had to ship this to kids. He's been compared to Joe Camel. Yeah, I remember thinking that Camel was cool as a kid. I had no idea what it was selling. A DOE spokesperson defended Yucca Mountain Johnny, arguing that it teaches hydrology, geology, and earth science. And it is part of our duty to explain to the public what we're doing. But the issue is, is you weren't doing anything. You were doing some proposals that have been repeatedly delayed. So is Yucca Mountain Johnny the best thing? I don't know. Oh, there's no youth zone on the DOE's website anymore. Interesting. Cool. All right, where do we go from here? Yeah, another representative said to sell the Yucca Mountain project to our children through the use of a cartoon character is an irresponsible and desperate act. Yeah, because you're basically advertising. And there are some really strict rules on advertising to kids. And I know it's not like they'll go home and say, Mom, we have to vote for Yucca Mountain project and because Yucca Mountain Johnny told me so, but it's a bit weird. A bit weird. Let's check out John Porter. 
Okay, he was in office for six years as a Republican in the 3rd Congressional District of Nevada. But he was born in Iowa. Interesting, graduated high school in Iowa. He worked in his family business before moving to Boulder City, Nevada, and he still lives there. He was an agent for Farmers Insurance. In December 2005, he joined with several other congressmen to form the Second Amendment, a bipartisan rock and country band set to play for United States troops stationed overseas over the holiday season. That literally sounds like a sketch. That sounds made up. We may have to go to their page. You know what? Yeah, we're going to the band. Here we go. It featured Colin Peterson, Thaddeus McCotter, Dave Weldon, and Kenny Holshoff. It broke up after the 2008 elections when two of its members retired and Porter lost his re-election re bid. Bummer. That is a sad end. Well, they had a handful of good years, I guess. There's also the Singing Senators. Who knew? Group of Republican Senators who sang as a barbershop quartet, John Ashcroft, Larry Craig, James Jeffords, and Trent Lott, who were active 1995 to 2000 and then popped back up in 2007? Any particular reason? They practiced in Lot's hideaway office every day. Lot formed the group in large part to improve relations between the Republican conference, of which Lot was majority leader, and Jeffords, a Republican who frequently voted with the Democrats. Interesting attempt at being bipartisan. The revival, this is what I'm curious about. So, singing senators Lot and Craig said they were putting the quartet back together after a six year hiatus. They put in Bob Bennett and John Thune. Senator Craig was subsequently inducted into the Idaho Hall of Fame. Craig said that the group was now a trio. Lotz announced resignation in 2007 seemed to put the existence of a trio in doubt. Craig's decision not to not run for another time in 2008, due in part to the controversy over his arrest for solicitation the previous year, that's what we're going to. He was arrested at Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport for lewd conduct in a men's restroom, where he was accused of soliciting a male undercover police officer for sexual activity. Craig insisted upon his innocence, disputing the officer's version of the event by stating that he merely had a wide stance. Oh, were you? And that he had been picking up a piece of paper from the floor, because that's what everyone does in a men's restroom. You're picking up paper off the floor. I'm, I'm sure you are. Very believable, Craig. Nice try. Oh, and they've even got a picture of the bathroom. Quick, let us give it its day. There it is. The famous bathroom where Craig took a wide stance and apparently picked up some paper on the floor in a urinal. Not a good argument, bro. Just not, not good. Let's go to the main article. I feel like there's some details missing. And I do like the sordid details. The nature of the alleged activity has been categorized by some as cottaging. What's that? Gay slang term referring to anonymous sex between men in a public lavatory. Okay, again, learn something new every day. According to the police report, the police officer sat in a bathroom stall as part of an undercover operation investigating complaints of sexual activity in the restroom. Oh, this restroom has seen it all, apparently. It has all been seen in here. After about 13 minutes of sitting in the stall, the police officer observed Craig lingering outside and frequently peeking through the crack of the door on the stall. Oh my god, how brash. Why would you do that? Why would anybody do that? That's creepy. I'm creeped out, man. Craig then entered the stall to the left of the officer's stall. The police officer made the following observations, which he recorded in his report of the incident as to what happened next. 
tapped his right foot, uh, recognized this as a signal used by persons wishing to engage in lewd conduct. Wow, that's so secretive. He tapped his toe several times and moved his foot close to my foot. The presence of others did not seem to deter him. Oh, he moved his right foot so that it touched the side of my left foot, which was within my stall area. So he claimed he had a wide stance. That's why his foot was in the stall next to him. Wide stance, really Craig? Really? God, what a trash lawyer. He then proceeded to swipe his left hand under the stall divider several times with the palm of his hand facing upward. According to the incident report, the officer then showed Craig his police identification beneath the partition separating the stalls, and then the officer pointed his finger towards the restroom exit. I find it interesting that he didn't have to say anything about paying for sex, it was just assumed that his foot touching the other foot and the hand was enough. It's kind of curious, but still silly. Wow, this, uh, this article is huge. Okay, I want to get out of politics, let's try and deviate here. How can we deviate? Oh, <laughs> in the 2018 release of Deadpool 2, Deadpool is apologizing to Colossus and references the incident. He says, I'm sorry, you trusted me. I took that trust and I turned it into a glory hole at an airport bathroom. The one in Minneapolis, you know the one. Um, I don't know where to go from here. It's gonna have to be cottaging. Aye, everything else is too political. Okay, well, we've learned what this is, so let's just try to find something else to click on. As you and I probably thought, cottage usually means a small countryside home, but it was in use during the Victorian era to refer to a public toilet. That is very underwhelming. I have so many good associations with cottage, and public toilet is not one of them. So, cottaging is a UK term, apparently the American one is tea room. Now you know. Let's, um, stray far away to the Piccadilly Circus underground station, where naturally I have been. See if there's anything interesting in the history about it. So this is basically a really popular um, station in London. Doesn't seem like there's much of interest here, so I think I'm curious about the architect of the booking hall, somebody called Leslie Green, who apparently designed many central London booking halls. So let's go to Leslie. English architect. Oh yes, that is the face of an English architect. I ever saw one. Oh, he died very young, 33. Poor guy. Well, maybe he was horrible. Let's find out. He's best known for his design of iconic stations constructed on the London Underground Railway system in central London during the first decade of the 20th century. Private life, yes please. He was born and made of veil. He was the second of four children. Oh, and his father was also an architect. So it ran in the family. In 1904, they had a daughter. God, she lived a long time. She died in 1995. So what happened to him? God, he had a lot of work designing 50 new stations. He was busy man. He packed it in those 33 years. Jeez, that's an insane amount. Look at these stations he's made. Oh, <gasps> that's everything. Well, okay, it's not. There's a lot of stations, but that is... Those are all the big ones. That's a significant number of big stations. That is impressive. Was he loaded? He con oh, so his death. He contracted pulmonary tuberculosis and died at a sanatorium. Ooh, how bleak. Wow. Well, that was a short but very full life, that's for sure. Let's, um, let's head over to the sanatorium. So sanatoriums are medical facilities for long-term illness, most typically associated with the treatment of tuberculosis. Not to be confused with the East European sanatorium, which is a kind of health resort. <laughs> that's a very that's a very different experience. Oh my god, the Finns put it on a stamp. That's, that seems a bit distasteful or weird, isn't it? I don't know. Sanatoriums don't exactly have a great reputation as far as I remember. 
the pre-antibiotic era, that was a dark time. So it was actually common in the US in the early 20th century. There were several in Asheville, North Carolina, and the first was established before the cause of tuberculosis was even known. There's actually a town in Mississippi called Sanatorium. We're going there. It's a community. It was named for the Mississippi Tuberculosis Sanatorium, founded in 1916, which was a hospital for TB patients from 1918 to the 1950s. In 1976, the facilities were transferred to the Mississippi Department of Mental Health and renamed Boswell Regional Center. Okay, well there's less information there than I thought. I thought there would be more. And they abolished the postal address. How sad. Sanatorium lies between Highway 49 and Highway 149 and was once home to the only drive-in movie theatre in the region. You can still see the ruins of the screen from the old highway. George Grubbs, a Simpson County judge, owned the Skyfe San Hotel. What? It was converted into a halfway house in the 1990s. Let's go to Halfway House. Institute for people with criminal backgrounds or abusive drug use tendencies to learn or relearn the necessary skills to reintegrate into society and better support and care for themselves. NIMBY effect. Yes. Oh, the NIMBYs. The not in my backyard people. Mmm. Let's learn more about the NIMBYs. It's an acronym for the phrase not in my backyard is a characterization of opposition by residents to proposed developments in their local area, as well as support for strict land use regulations. Yeah, oh yes, there are lots of NIMBYs everywhere. They're opposed to everything. You can see them on the Nextdoor app too. They are just incorrigible. With the NIMBYs, there is often no progress. Variations. Nambi, Banana and Cave, Pibby and Sobby. Sobby sounds accurate. Some other bugger's backyard. <laughs> Pibby place in oh that's that's a racist one that's unfortunate banana is an acronym for build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything or anyone that is pretty good there's also cave people acronym for citizens against virtually everything <laughs> yeah there's quite a few of those not in my neighborhood is Nimmin. That's a crappy acronym. And not against my business or industry, Nambi. Who knew there were so many variations? I thought it was just NIMBY. But now, um, there are lots of NIMBYs. Examples. In China, there were many famous cases of nail houses, including one property holdout who had expressways built around and completely encircled his apartment building in Guangzhou. What's a nail house? Oh, it's a piece of property that did not become a part of a larger real estate development because the owner refused to sell or wanted more than the developer would pay. God, look at all these NIMBYs. There are so many. It's an absolute war zone, the NIMBY area. Oh my God. And this is just a sample. What's Fenno's paradox? I'm kind of interested in that. Let's go to that. Oh, it's short. Fenno's paradox is the belief that people generally disapprove of the United States Congress as a whole, but support the congressmen from their own congressional districts. It is named after political scientist Richard Fenno, who discussed this in his 1978 book. Fenno discovered that congressmen would often run against Congress. That is true. US citizens largely disapprove of the public school system, but tend to like the particular local schools their children attend. That is an interesting paradox. People do tend to disapprove of Congress, but they get very passionate about the people they vote in and then they complain. Given we're three weeks away from election day, I think Fenno's paradox is an appropriate note to end on. God, it's only three weeks away. Jeez. Well, thank God for that. It's almost over. So keep that in mind as you're going through your voter guide. The Congress you will future disapprove of is the one you will ultimately vote for. And that's my PSA. So today we started with the Human Interference Task Force, which 
has been created to solve the conundrum of how to communicate to generations millennia down the line about where radioactive waste is and how to avoid it to Fenno's Paradox. On the way, we went through some really weird shit, including some salacious scandals in public bathrooms and London Underground stations, which were less salacious, but still interesting, to sanatoriums and beyond. Oh, and the NIMBYs. We got to the NIMBYs as well. And if you enjoyed this Clickhole Wednesday, please like and subscribe. It lets me know you're enjoying the content. Otherwise, I'm just shouting into the void, which I mostly am anyway, but it's alright because at least I'm enjoying myself. Please leave a suggestion for where we should start next time. If you know of an interesting Wikipedia article or something you like, um, we shall start there and click onwards. Until the next Clickhole Wednesday, stay tuned for another video on Saturday. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye.